Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm the urban spaceman, baby. I've got speed. Um, I do not possess any um, illicit substances, uh, but I am still Kev. <laughs> oh, Kevin, how are you? I'm very good, yeah. It currently sounds outside, so I don't know if it will get picked up by the mic, as though, um, well, the army is shelling the scallies uh, near me house. <laughs> or, you know. Yes, uh, for, <laughs> for everyone listening, it is the 5th of November, which in the UK is Guy Fawkes Night, or as it's colloquially known in the Northwest, Bommy Night. Indeed, and um, following on from uh, last week's Mizzy Night. Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah the 30th of october is called mischief night which is basically where scars go out and act like dicks <laughs> so what what i discovered our first album um was recorded on the 30th and 31st of october apparently that night the 30th mizzy night here is known as devil's night in detroit oh, where they okay. go around setting fire to shit so again not that different. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair. <laughs> uh, okay, with that then, why don't you tell people what our album clash is over this week and next? So we travelled to uh, Detroit from from Bristol, and our car broke down. So we were stuck in uh, Motor City, and <laughs> our clash this week is between two debut albums of two incredibly influential Detroit bands. MC5's Kick Out the Jams, Muddy Funsters, and The Stooges, The Stooges. Well, and not just incredibly influential Detroit bands, but two bands whose histories are intimately intertwined. Without question. So I suppose the natural question is, why is this a clash? So Yeah, so what? Kef, why did you choose this clash? (laughs) So they're both two Detroit bands. Um, They're both certainly viewed as pioneers of punk of proto-punk garage music and both bands as as tim said are interlinked so the stooges arguably owe their career to the mc5 so danny fields who was um electra records a and r man came up to detroit to watch the mc5 now the stooges opened for the mc5 and he ended up signing both bands on the same day yes And the MC5 were traditionally seen as the clever political band and the Stooges as dumb punks. You know, in in different interviews, Iggy Pop's been really complimentary towards the MC5 for their generosity and their inspiration to the Stooges. Unfortunately, it was not always reciprocated in latter years. I think a bit of jealousy about how successful Iggy Pop had gone on to be. So Dennis Thompson, the MC5's drummer, said we were the runaway sons of a nuclear a-bomb not iggy pop that and he then uses uh, an epithet beginning with f the a derogatory homophobic slur oh no that's a shame yeah it is really considering what the mc5 purported to stand for as well so yeah without giving too much away for what we're going to go through today the mc5's light shone very brightly but uh very briefly indeed <laughs> 
Yeah, all right. So I'm looking forward to this one. Um, it is, uh, as Kev said, it's we are in the same city. So our, our musical cities uh, season has taken us all the way from Detroit to Detroit. And to Ann Arbor, you know. Fair play. Yeah, but very much in the Michigan area. Yeah, we, we've not left Michigan. <laughs> but as you said last week, a very different scene and a very different style of music. Mm-hmm. Very much so. All right, then. Should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? Yes, we should. Oh, now, you said that with such earnestness that I I am assuming you have some shite stuck in your head. I definitely have some shite this week. What is your shite? So, you know, sometimes people around you get shit songs stuck in their head, and much like a virus, it spreads to the collective body politic, if you like. Yes. So this morning... So Sam, who's been on the pod before and is our curator of carefully crafted content. Lovely bit of alliteration, if I do say so myself. Lovely alliteration, yes, indeed. Unfortunately, she was singing the chorus to Stacey's Mom by Fountains of Wayne. Oh, no. Because it got stuck in her head and she decided to pass it on. Oh, and now I'm going to be singing it too. A fucking dreadful song. Subweetus pop punk shit. <laughs> I mean, and I could have quite easily thrown Wheatus under the bus for their frankly abysmal cover of Respect, which is a the original, which is a banger. It is a banger. Very much a fan of Erasure's stuff here. Huh. So I'm glad you mentioned covers. Can I go <laughs> on to my shite, please? <laughs> I I think I have an idea of what you're gonna bring up. <laughs> yeah. So my shite is new, brand new today. It is Lola Young's cover of Phil Oakey and Giorgio Moroder's Together in Electric Dreams. Now, why would I select a brand new song that's only been released today as my can't get you out of my head shite? <laughs> Kevin? Would it be on some kind of Christmas advertising campaign by any chance? It would indeed. So, and this is something we've spoken about before. That song is the latest entry into the John Lewis panoply of mawkishly sentimental cover versions that accompany their Christmas advert. Like, let's tug your heartstrings to sell you our overpriced wares. So, full disclosure, <laughs> I am no huge fan of Phil Oakey. I may have mentioned that on the pod before. Yeah, you, you, you are not a fan of Phil Oakey. I'm not. However... Together in Electric Dreams is not a bad song. I mean, it's got Moroder, and he saves it. And it's also from the amazing 80s film Mannequin. Uh, Yes, indeed, it is. (laughs) But just, oh, God almighty. This should be the real fucking controversy of this John Lewis Christmas advert. Awful. I mean, as we've talked before, we're no fans of these, as I said, mawkishly sentimental cover versions. They can just absolutely get in the bin because they... They can get in the bin. Like, when they first first started doing them, they were there was something interesting, but it is it has infected the whole advertising industry. So um, something which, you know, like Olive's uh, You're Not Alone, which is a decent song, has had a slowed down, breathy, piano-based version, which is for some bank or something like that. The, the most egregious example was the slowed down version of Praise You for the Lloyd's TSB advert. Oh, God, yeah. It's just... Just just stop it. Stop it now. Exactly. And also stop these ridiculously overblown cinematic Christmas adverts. Fuck off. Well, it's become a thing now, hasn't it? It's... Yeah. 
Right, yeah, get in the bin. Get in the bin, exactly. Sorry, so that's my shite, and as you can tell, it's something that I think we both feel quite strongly about. Well, I'm not, I'm not that arsed about the ridiculous advertising campaigns or anything like that. It is just taking the balls out of songs and making them palatable to people who buy throws. Yeah, and I'm going to say, even artists we like are not exempt from this because Elbow did a cover of Golden Slumbers, which was just nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, yeah, that's my shite. Let's move on. What about you, good? Okay, so (laughs) my good, a band that me and you um, both have really enjoyed, and we will definitely do some of their stuff on the pod at some point, um, Spiritualized. Oh, Uh, Well, there's a new album due in February next year, which is called Everything Was Beautiful. The cover work refers back to the front of uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, We're Floating in Space. Um, Nice. So, you know, I'm already excited about that. And the song is Always Together With You. It's the single that's been released off the album. And it is exactly what you would expect from a spiritualized tune. It is big. It's anthemic. Choral massive sound it's fucking brilliant excellent i'll be checking that out i haven't heard it great stuff okay mine is also brand new it is the song called uh maelstrom by dublin indie band melts that is m-e-l-t-s all capitalized absolute melts <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that. you muggy little melts you melt <laughs> okay Putting bad Cockney accents aside, the song itself is great. Well, I would describe it as furious electro-punk indie. Well, all those words are right in my wheelhouse. I'm excited about this. So it's very in the vein of Hookworms or TVAM. Grand. Yeah, exactly. It's really good. You'd love it. It's brilliant. Okay, I'm going to get all over that. As ever, we will post out the links to those and add them to our YouTube playlist. Uh, top trumps time. Okay, let's let's do it. So we drew last time, didn't we? We did indeed. So you still lead. I still lead, as it's still my honour, I believe. It is indeed. I'm not feeling great about this one. I got to say, I think it, I think it's going to be a, a tight one this one uh, because, mm. well, essentially your one is not necessarily as well known, and my one, well, as we will get into, was critically reviled at the time. So you know. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay, where am I going to start? I'll start with charts. Okay. In the US, Kick Out the Jams reached number 30. Okay, this did not do well. <laughs> so it reached a peak of 106. Oh, wow. Okay, so I win that one then. Oh, God, where am I going next? I'm going to go awards. MC5 were nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, 2016, 2018, 2019, and 2020. They are yet to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, though. The Stooges made it into the Rock and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. Yeah, okay. So you win that one. All right, one all, and uh, it's your choice. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to go with Uptown Top Rankings. Okay. So, the Rolling Stone Top 500. Yeah. 2003 and 2012, number 185. Oh, okay. I'm 294. So, on those two. two yeah. So, you are leading so far. 
2020, yeah, it had dropped somewhat to number 488. It clung into the top 500. What? <laughs> it fell over 300 places. Yes. <laughs> okay, in eight years. I'm not sure about you, but I can't think of 300 amazing albums that were released between 2012 and 2020. Nope. <laughs> I might struggle to name 30, to be honest. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, so uh, so MC5 also dropped between 2012 and 2020, but nowhere near as dramatically. It went from 294 to 349. So... I'm not quite sure what we do about that because on the first two you were like kicking my ass, but I'm over a hundred places ahead on this on on the most recent one. Yes, it was quite the precipitous drop. Let's call it a draw then. Yeah, I agree. Let's call it a draw. And as we've said before, don't ever trust subjective comparisons of one recording against another. No, I mean that's a ridiculous way to do things. <laughs> don't undercut the format. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay. Right, still your choice. Um, So I'll go certifications. The only thing I've got is in the UK, it got silver. Uh, I have nothing at all. Okay, so that's that's a clear win. So you win. Yep, go on. Okay, critic scores. All music, four and a half out of five. All music, five out of five. Rolling Stone, and I'm assuming this would be a reappraised Rolling Stone (laughs) score. Four out of five. Ooh, okay. Three out of five. Ooh, okay. So that's a draw as well. That is a draw as well, which leaves only one category, and uh, I am fucked on the last category. <laughs> okay. So the last category is sales. I'll just come out. I couldn't find any sales figures for Kick Out the Jams. I also have questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, yeah, we have no idea. So a victory a for me. Ah, fuck. That puts, so that levels it up for all. About time, because I was on quite the losing streak. You were indeed. You were indeed. So yeah, as you said, it was a it was a close one, and and reflective of the fact that both of these records have very much been reappraised in the years since their release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've grown in import and uh, recognition. Okay, so yeah, you levelled it up at four all. That's top trumps out of the way, but that's not the most important part of Album Clash. No, we all know the most important part of Album Clash is when we talk about fonts. <laughs> uh, which I will be doing both this week and next week. <laughs> uh, shall I start taking us through Kick Out The Jams? Yes, I think I think the listeners are probably begging us to. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. Uh, right, so as Kev said, Kick Out the Jams, the debut album from the MC5. It was released in February 1969 on, as you said, Electro Records. Unusually for a debut, it is a live album. And as you said, it was recorded over two nights on the 30th and 31st of October 1968 at the Detroit Grand Ballroom, which is a venue that the MC5 had a history of, of a tradition of playing o- over those two nights, I, I believe. I mean, essentially, they had a residency set up for them by John Sinclair. Yeah. Not a Vegas-style one, though. What, like Celine Dion playing every night for 16 years or whatever? <laughs> At a hotel. <laughs> yeah, no, a fucking casino. <laughs> go for the shrimp buffet and then <laughs> see a show. Give us all your money and then go and see Celine Dion. That's a terrible deal, that. <laughs> I've never been to Vegas, and I have no desire ever to go to Vegas. Uh, I'm led to believe that in the casinos, they get you drunk for free. Well, I, I would imagine that they certainly want to keep you in there. 
See, I'd be tempted to keep getting free drinks and like just put I'll 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 put a quarter on black <laughs> and see how long it would take before they forcefully ask me to leave. I've never been there either, but I am led to believe that the casinos are very much like IKEA in the they're huge. There's no natural light, and you've got no fucking idea of how to leave. Is Vegas America's Blackpool? <laughs> Is Blackpool Britain's Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> We have strayed off topic somewhat <laughs> quite early for yeah. us, actually. <laughs> right. Returning to the subject at hand, the album was, as I said, it was recorded at the Detroit Grand Ballroom. It was produced by the co-founder of Elektra Records, Jack Holtzman, and longtime Doors collaborator, Bruce Botnick. Dr. Rose Lad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So, background and history of the MC5. Uh, So, in 1964, uh, Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith, two guitarists who had been friends since school, both playing in separate bands who were, you know, sort of getting by, decided to effectively merge their two bands together and formed the band that was at that time called the Bounty Hunters. Soon after that, they recruited a guy called Rob Derminer, who initially auditioned to be the band's bassist, but Wayne Kramer and Fred Smith felt that he had this sort of charisma and attitude they were looking for in their vocalists, so persuaded him to join in that capacity. Soon after that, Rob Derminer would change his name to Rob Tyner, after John Coltrane's pianist, because John Coltrane was a huge influence on the MC5. So, Rob Tyner became the lead vocalist for the band. He also came up with the name. MC5 is an abbreviation of Motor City 5. Obviously, Detroit, as we've alluded to already, being the Motor City. Uh, Apparently, the inspiration for that was taken from the British group, the Dave Clark 5, who were often shortened to the DC 5. In 1965, three became five after they recruited Michael Davis and Dennis Thompson on bass and drums, respectively. Mm -hmm. So then in in 1966, they met left-wing activist and future founder of the uh, White Panther Party, John Sinclair. He offered to be the band's manager... (laughs) And I've got a great quote from him from an interview with The Guardian in 2014. So he said, they were a mess, man. Not only did they not have a manager, they didn't even have a roadie. They would show up when they were supposed to be playing on stage and then spend an hour setting up and arguing over who owned what guitar lead. Been there. (laughs) All the while, the audience was sitting there waiting. It was kind of tragic. I helped knock them into shape, which... You mentioned sort of garage band aesthetic earlier on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not even garage band aesthetic. That's fucking about with your mates. <laughs> Has anyone got a plectrum? <laughs> fucking lost mine. Mine's the red lead, you prick. Yours is the fucking black one with the scratch marks down it. It's the one that's all frayed. <laughs> As I said, been there, done that. <laughs> okay. With John Sinclair as their manager, they really started to develop quite a strong reputation around Detroit for their really energetic live performances. 
So a, a great quote from a, a rock journalist at the time, Robert Bixby, who likened them to a catastrophic force of nature that the band was barely able to control. I think that's a brilliant way to describe them. It is. So they, uh, having developed this sort of burgeoning reputation, they, they, they toured the East Coast and played support slots for a load of, um, uh, of bigger acts, including uh, most notably Cream. You can certainly see the influence from Cream. Definitely. So I mentioned John Sinclair and his activism. As I say, he founded the White Panther movement, which was sort of affiliate of the Black Panthers, wasn't it, really? Yeah, it was, a, it was a response. So there was a question asked to one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party saying, what can white people do to support you? And, said, and he literally said, form the White Panther Party, which is what John Sinclair and a couple of other fellas uh, decided to do. Yep, indeed. And so that, that activism gained the band, as well as their sort of their reputation for sort of raucous live shows gave them some, let's say, notoriety amongst the authorities. It, I suppose it also gave them like some level of counterculture kudos as well. It definitely did. And all this was set against the backdrop of the Detroit race riots, which we referred to a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. actually, in 1967. So they all lived in a communal home in Detroit. And during the riots, someone within the home hung a banner uh, displaying the White Panther logo and very prominently the words burn baby burn from that communal house. Following which, riot police stormed the building claiming that a sniper had been shooting at them from (laughs) the roof. Of course they saw that. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Okay, so from the same interview with John Sinclair with The Guardian, he said, We were harassed 24-7. Busted for incitement, possession, whatever they could throw at us. We wanted to kick ass and raise consciousness. They played every gig like it was their last. They wanted to level the place like rubble every night. That's why it was too intense for the hippies of the West Coast. They hated us, man. But in Detroit, we made total sense. A lot of these radical groups at the time didn't know anything about the working class because they didn't know any working class people. Same with black people. They didn't mix with any black people. The MC5 were working class. They knew about life on the streets. And we dug black people because that's where the great music came from and the great weed and refreshing concepts of sexuality. I mean, like, so the the band performed at the, the free gig that was outside the infamous 1968 Democratic yep. National Convention in Chicago, which is covered in the uh, Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And, you know, so that that was sort of the nexus of a load of sort of counterculture movements coming together. And obviously the American government did not take kindly to the scenes that played out in Chicago. They were actually the only band to play at that protest, despite there being lots of other notaries from the music industry there. Well, including E.E. Pop, for one. Mm-hmm. And Neil Young apparently was also there. But yeah, the MC5 were the only group that actually had the balls to get up and play. Yeah, which again speaks to their politics, their activism. Certainly activism whilst they were managed by John Sinclair anyway. Definitely, yes. Okay, so they released a couple of singles around the same time in 68 on their own independent label. And as you said right at the start, their growing reputation meant that Danny Fields from Electra Records came to see them and offered them a record deal along with the Stooges. 
And that was in September of 1968. Now, bearing in mind what I said at the start, that this was recorded at the end of October 1968. And so regarding the recording of, of, of an album and the decision for their debut album to be a live album, the band basically felt that because their reputation was built on the energy and the furiosity of their live performances, that that would be the best way to go. So, and this is an interview I'm going to come back to quite a few times. Wayne Kramer, speaking to Louder Sound in 2019, said, Playing live was what we did best. Most bands did three albums and then a live album. So we thought we were revolutionary and break out with a live album first. It also worked better for the label. MC5 didn't know how to work in the studio, so a studio record would have cost the letter of fortune and been a lengthy, gruelling process. And... That's why they decided on the 30th and the 31st of October 68 to go to the Detroit Grand Ballroom and uh, and record the performances. I mean, you know, if you were going to record them live, the best place you could possibly record them would be their home turf where, yep. you know, they'd played loads, they had their home crowds and they could absolutely go for it. Like, if you're going to try and get lightning in a bottle, that's the best kind of setup that you can. Uh, very, very much so, as we will go on to talk about shortly. Beforehand, though, artwork. So, um, the cover art is a photo collage of the band during the show. The photography was taken by Joel Brodsky, who also took the photography for the studios. We'll talk about it next week. One thing I'll say about one of the photos on the on the cover is it looks as though Dennis Thompson's got a drumstick stuck up his nose. <laughs> Just because of the angle it's taken. <laughs> Are you suggesting he looks like Angus the Bogeyman? I was going to say he looks like Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all know Ralph Wiggum plays a flute. <laughs> so the nose flute, of course. <laughs> I mean... Well, I said we're going to talk about fonts. What a font. It's a great font. It's pure slime the family stone. Yeah, it's the cover art, the the font, the design of it is very reminiscent of the time. It is indeed. The one thing I would say is that it doesn't really scream to me that this is furious, politically charged proto-punk rock that will attack me when I put this on the record deck. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't really tell you what's coming. And uh, I mean, like, because obviously in the photo collage, there's an American flag in sort of the background. So it, yeah. you, you don't know what's coming. And I suppose that's part of the beauty of it, is that you could you could go for something that's absolutely on the button, um, and they don't do that. That's fair, yeah. The, the last thing I want to say, I mentioned the font. I don't know if you know, but their touring van at the time was like the A-Team van. It was black and it had mm-hmm. like MC5 in that font on the side. Like, yeah. Oh, that looks so good. Yeah, exactly. That looks so good. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, it's fairly simple, the cover, really, but um, quite effective. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it also works. Okay, so on to how we discovered the album. Uh, I'll go first, if you don't mind, because it's going to be really quick. Uh, It's a first listen for me, this. I was very aware of the title track beforehand, mainly because of various cover versions, but I've heard the original a number of times now as a result of that. But I've never explored the album beyond that. So for this clash, first listen for me. How about you? 
I discovered it through the band uh, we're going to cover next week. So through the Stooges. And we talked about when we did The Idiot. I got into Iggy Pop through Bowie and went back through Iggy Pop to the Stooges and obviously went to MC5. So I've been au fait with this album for, you know, a good 10, 15 years or so, I would say. Cool. Well, uh, shall we dig in? Yeah, let's, let's get right into it. All right. So we start with... Rambling Rose, a song written by Mary John William and uh, Fred Burke. It was originally recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis in 1962. Nonce. <laughs> Confirmed nonce, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> it has also been recorded by Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, and, going back to a couple of weeks ago, Marvin Gaye, among others. So I would like to correct you on that. Oh. So the Nat King Cole version yes. is a different song. Oh. So it's most known for do, uh, being recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis and Ted Taylor. Right. Okay. Interesting. Uh, whosample.com has let me down there. Do you know what? Like, I could I could well be wrong because I check, I wanted to check it out. Because, you know, there's a damn song, Rambling Rose. Yes. So I thought... It was the same one. Yeah, I thought they may have covered it. So that's why... I, anyway. Okay. What we can confirm is that the original recording of this song was from a man who married his 13-year-old cousin. Yes, absolute nonce. Indeed. <laughs> but before... So before you start the song, there is a, a, a sort of testimonial speech. It's a, um, a bit of rabble-rousing. Exactly that. That is performed by the group's spiritual advisor, Brother J.C. Crawford. What I'll say about that, before I talk about the song, is that, so yeah, a bit of rabble-rousing, it is a massive call to arms where he says, Mm -hmm. the time has come for each and every one of you to decide whether you're going to be the problem or whether you're going to be the solution. You must choose, brothers. You must choose. It's pretty clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much with them at this point. What do you think of the song so i really like it it's got a really caustic opening and it's really up tempo there's filthy guitars the drumming's great and because it's done live you get this tremendous feeling of the absolute chaos of the performance yeah it doesn't fall apart but it sounds like any minute like it's gonna kick off there's like a a menace to the sound and everything that's going on okay i'm going to ask a slightly different question what do you think of the choice of opening the album with this song as opposed to the one that follows it? I do think it's the right choice to go into Rambling Rose rather than straight into Kick Out the Jams for the simple reason that you start off up tempo and then you you whack it up even more in the next song and then you keep that energy level going. It's the Nick Hornby rules of making a mixtape. Yes, you don't start with your absolute fire even though I really like this song, and I, I think I think it's in the right position. I, I do have issue with position in the album, but not this. Okay, fine. Point taken. Actually, yeah, I, I really like it too. So, like the song itself, it's it, you know, it's a twelve-bar blues standard, basically. But it's deliver. It's a punch in the gut. And let's throw ourselves back to nineteen sixty-eight if we can. This is like nothing, nothing you've ever heard before. 
No one's coming out with anything remotely this high octane in 1968. I mean, you can understand why the West Coast did not take to them because this is not going to California. This is not... This is not wearing a flower in your hair. Yeah, this is very much not. This is like, if you wear a fucking flower in your hair, I'm going to throw a Molotov cocktail at you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, something else I want to say at... And it might be, a, well, it is a simplistic line to draw, but uh, aside from all the other bands that we're going to talk about drawing inspiration f- from this album, on this song in particular, I can see where ACDC got their MO mm-hmm. from. And that's simplistic because of whole lot of Rosie, but you've got that energy, that rawness, but that tightness. And you're right about the sort of chaotic element, but. I don't think you meant that about the band. No. Because the band throughout this, despite the fury, despite the energy, the pace, the ferocity, they're tight as fuck all the way through this album. Oh, yeah, with, without question. Like, the chaos is, sonically, it's, it just has this malevolent... Like, so if you think of the politics of the time, this is this is the Paris Commune. This is Prague in 68, fight, like, throwing Molotov cocktails at... At Russian tanks. This is like the riot outside the American embassy protesting uh, Vietnam in London. That's the furious end of the 60s. This is not your sun dappled flowers in your hair, hippie movement. It's nothing to do with that fucking shit. It's all to do with we are fucking against this and we are angry. And this is angry music to fight a, fight the power. Indeed. And uh, if anyone who is a long-time listener of the show was in any doubt as to Kevin's political assuasions, I believe after that uh, passage, (laughs) such doubt would have been (laughs) removed. (laughs) No, you're right, though. Just one more thing, though, before we move on. So, this song is sung by Wayne Kramer, not Rob Tyner. I'm not so sure... Well, I'm not really understanding why he chooses to sing it in a falsetto voice. Because you hear later in the album when he's doing backing vocals that he can he can reach notes that are higher and he can belt things out with that fury that, that Rob Tyner does. So I'm not quite sure why he chooses to sing it in that style. It's an odd choice. It, yeah. It's not, it's not a bad choice, but yeah, it's... I, it's not what I would have, what I would have done. No, no, exactly. But yeah, I, I uh, big fan of Rambling Rose. I think it's a, it's a great way to start things off. Yeah. Okay then. Uh, well, right now, right now, it's time to kick out the jams, motherfucker. We gotta kick them out. Right. Okay. I'm gonna say this now, and I'm gonna put a pin in this. We will come back to that intro and the reaction to that intro later on when we do Legacy, okay? <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot. <laughs> Let's just say that. There's a thing. Yeah, there is a thing. But I'll come back to that when we do Legacy, right? Okay, so this was uh, a single to promote the album in March of 69. It reached number 82 on the Billboard Hot 100. The single version, to tease the conversation that we're going to have later, the single version has a different intro which says kick out the jams brothers and sisters so something well it's a common theme between between this album and the one we're going to talk about next week is that all of the songs well all of the original songs on this album are credited to each of the five band members 
rather than to Lennon and McCartney or or, or Noel Gallagher. You know what I mean? Rather than to one mm-hmm. one one member. And that speaks to their literally communist approach to life. You know, we are a collective. We share the spoils of our of our collective work. So, but just on the some of the specifics, this is from the Louder Sound article uh, interview with Wayne Kramer that I mentioned earlier. Wayne Kramer said, "We just saw ourselves as a unit, but it was Rob Tyler and I that wrote Kick Out the Jams in the kitchen while smoking a joint." Now. Regarding the song's title, there are quite a few conflicting explanations as to what the title actually means. Most, if not all of which, come from Wayne Kramer himself. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely comes in the Alan McGee territory of unreliable narrator. (laughs) Sometimes within the same article. (laughs) All right, so... Here's a couple of, of, of explanations that he's given. In an interview with Song Facts, he said, we were using the expression for a long time because we'd be critical of other bands that came to Detroit that the MC5 would open for. They'd come to town with this big reputation and then they'd get up on stage and they weren't very good. So we used to harass them. We'd yell at them, kick out the jams or get off the stage, motherfucker. Finally, one day we said, I like that expression. We should use it in a song. Then back to the Louder Sounds article. Firstly, he says, Tyner was really speaking to us, the rest of the band. Sometimes I was critical of him, and what he's saying is, let me be who I am, because who he was was fantastic. What do we mean when we say kick out the jams? If you're going to do anything, do it full measure. Don't equivocate. Be all the way in. But then in the same interview, he says about the song title, and about people who've who've interpreted it as as a reference to some of their contemporaries in in what was at the time the burgeoning prog rock movement. He said, they were the recipients of much of our harassment. This was the era of the 20-minute guitar solo, the 40-minute drum solo. The MC5 roots are in Little Richard and Chuck Berry. That's where we were based, and everything grew from there. Okay, so... Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's a combination of all of those things. But actually, who gives a fuck? Exactly. <laughs> it's an absolute banger. It doesn't matter what the song's about because it's a fucking belter. That opening. We. How many times do we talk about a call to arms, like an absolute um, manifesto statement? That is a fucking statement. House. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I've said I've said manifesto as well. This can only be described as a manifesto, actually. Like, here we are. We are going to tear the fucking house down, and we do not give a shit what you think. Well, like, if you, I'm I'm going to torture an analogy. So, like, the first song is you poured some petrol all over the place, and now you're going to drop some fucking napalm on it just to make sure. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Not sure the band themselves would, have, would approve of the use of, of Napalm. Well, it depends where. <laughs> okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the music. So you talked about the intro. Again, it is played at such an unbelievable pace. Mm-hmm. But they still sound so tight. There's, yeah. there's no one's out of time. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing at any time. It's And, and yet you can still hear... A thousand strong crowd absolutely going off. 
The vocals themselves are, are furious. I think Rob Tyner sounds fucking phenomenal singing this. Mm-hmm. The riff that drives through the song is, well, it is the absolute heart and soul, isn't it? Yeah. And it, as I said, it's played at such a pace that it gives you palpitations, almost just thinking about it. <laughs> and to cap it off, you've got an absolute face melter of a guitar solo, not for the first time or the last time on this album. House. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Ace melting solo. (laughs) (sighs) I I, breathless is how this song leaves you. Literally breathless. It is. It is an unrelenting assault, and it's absolutely fucking perfect. It doesn't hold back. It doesn't try and do anything complicated. It doesn't need to. It is absolutely balls out fucking play it as quick as we can yep. right in your faces and have it and it, it is perfect for it agreed okay just a couple of the uh, who sampled facts although these may not be uh, reliable they are <laughs> so it's been sampled 16 times uh, most famously certainly in this country at the beginning of the KLF's What Time Is Love mm-hmm. which has the right now it's time to kick out the jams motherfuckers sample it's been covered 11 times, uh, including by the presidents of the USA. That's the first version of this song I ever heard. Uh, also been covered by Blue Oyster Cult. Fine. Okay. Jeff Buckley. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Exactly. Uh, and um, quite famously by Rage Against the Machine on their final uh, official album release, the cover album in 2000, Renegades. Uh, and in 2008, Wayne Kramer joined Rage on stage at, at the in Denver at the Democratic National Convention uh, <laughs> to play a live version. Went a bit better that time. <laughs> yeah. Or the police behaved a little better anyway. <laughs> okay. I think I've said all I have to say about, about Kick Out the Jams. Yeah, it's a classic. It is a classic indeed. All right, shall we go on to Come Together? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, this is another original song. It's about getting it on. <laughs> <laughs> all right, just some of the lyrics. All the guiding rhythms of the, all the nerve that takes a lover. Nipples stiffen, nipples stiffen. Nipples stiffen, mama. Let me give tongue to it, yes. Let me give tongue to it, yes. Together in the darkness. Come with me. Yes, 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 together, mama. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's, the only thing I can say is that is uh, very much the climactic moment of coitus being described <laughs> by lyrics. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a frenetic song. <laughs> so. It is a frenetic song. Once again, the, the bed of it is a repetitive riff, and I don't I don't mean repetitive in a pejorative sense. I you know it's just it's the glue that drives the song forward. I don't have a great deal to say about this. I quite like it. It's not great. So I I I really like it. I think it's very reminiscent of No Fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. The one of the notes that I made was. This is not um, your smooth uh, lovemaking of Barry White. This is a frenetic knee trembler behind the pub. 
you're one or two steps away from the Mac lads. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> for for well, for any of our listeners, really, but certainly our international listeners who are going no, like just ignore the reference to the Mac lads. There is no additional research <laughs> required. If you choose to if you choose to check it out, that's your own fault. That's all I'm saying. Kev, we've referred to far worse things than the Mac lads before. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> They're fucking dreadful. <laughs> oh, I know they're fucking dreadful. I'm not saying I like them, <laughs> nor do I think it's particularly contentious or controversial <laughs> for me to explain who or what they are. No, I right. Just... The Mark Lads were a shit comedy punk band from Macclesfield in Cheshire in the UK whose reputation was built on songs with quite blue lyrics. Basically a wank half-man, half-biscuit. I mean, that's been very, very unkind to half-man, half-biscuit. Actually, yeah, because I actually quite like half-man, half-biscuit. Yeah, just shit. Yeah, just been that half. (laughs) Staying in. It's good stuff. So, yeah, it's it's fine, this. It's fine. I am... it's not subtle, but that's not a criticism. It's not. It doesn't do anything special. If I was if I was there watching the gig, I'd have really enjoyed listening to it. So I was about to I was about to speak to that. So a note that I made. So obviously you've had Rambling Rose, you've had Kick Out the Jams, you had this, and I wrote, "Wish I was in the ballroom," because I understand why you're less keen on it than I am. But like as you as you perfectly put it, that if you were if you were at the gig. They've not let up in terms of tempo mm-hmm. and everything like that. Yeah. So you are you are going to be bouncing like fuck to this. True. Okay. As I say, I've got nothing else to say about it, so I'm I'm happy to move on. Yeah, let's go. All right, and we are on to Rocket Reducer number sixty-two. Open parentheses. Rama Lama Far Far Far. Close parentheses. <laughs> so it's another original song. In a 1994 interview, Wayne Kramer explained what the song's about. So he was asked, what would uh, sniffing rocket reducer do? And he replied, about the same as sniffing glue. Tovin, I think, is the active ingredient. It's a paint remover. It got you fucked up, that's for sure. There was a lot of experimentation in those days. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I really like this one. Again, it's another huge riff, which is the bedrock of the song. And Wayne Kramer's guitar work on top of that is just magnificent. We're talking about how tight the band is. I'm going to say now, Wayne Kramer's a fucking incredible lead guitarist. And, well, I had never heard him spoken about before I started researching this clash in any of those terms. And having listened to this album, why? No, he's never one of those names that comes up. And in, indeed, like the intensity hasn't dropped at all. It's another full on sonic assault. The guitar work is, it's so good, but simple as well. But like it works because of that. It doesn't need to be complicated. And it's just relentless. The audience must be absolutely fucked. <laughs> I'm assuming that they didn't just play eight songs yeah. over the two nights. Maybe they were just playing like Perry Como stuff in between these. Well, just before they played this, they played Albatross. <laughs> Maybe. What, a question that I noted down here that I wanted to ask you. Um, how do you feel about the Widley guitar ending? I mean, you're asking the wrong guy because I think it's boss. <laughs> so, whether you can probably go on, what, what did I note down? Goes on a bit too long. <laughs> I could probably do with a little less of it. (laughs) Hold that thought, but not on this song. So just the last thing I want to say about this, 
and we'll touch on this again later, but there's obviously a load of bands that have been influenced by this album. You know, any punk band you can mention. Mm-hmm. But on this track, perhaps more than any others, you can also hear how it influenced the likes of Motorhead and Sabbath uh, in just the way, in the in, again, the energy, the pace. But the way that the guitar riff is played to drive the song forward, it um, I got I got distinctly Motorhead vibes from this. Yeah, I can I can see I can see that. Okay, shall we go on to Borderline? Yeah, let's do it. At the halfway point already. I know we're flying through like the MC5. <laughs> we are. Uh, okay, so Borderline is a, another one about doing the electric boogaloo. <laughs> what do you think? So I'm not sure the song works. So it's got a good chorus, and the middle eight is really great, but the verse seems a it's a bit all over the shop. Like we've talked about it, like the songs have a bit of a chaotic energy to them, but this is a bit more just chaos sonically. Okay, once again, hive mind. A bit chaotic, this one. Two-stop start for me. Never really seems to settle on whatever it is. Is it a punk song or a hard rock jam? It ends up being neither. Mm-hmm. The the only other thing I would add is that the opening to the song gave me um, really strong Cream vibes. Definitely. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. Just the last thing before we move on. So I've got nothing else to say other than, other than despite its stop-start nature, this is another one where they do sound really tight. Yeah. Everyone knows what each other's doing at any point in the song. And given everything we've talked about, the energy in the room, the chaos be quite easy to lose that, and they don't. So, you know, they, they're clearly a very accomplished, very well-drilled band, despite the fact that neither of us is very keen on how this song is structured. No, like, it's it's one of the weird things about this song is that it's tight as fuck, but it sounds all over the shop. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it has a real sort of weird dichotomy going on. It does indeed. Okay, with that, shall we move on to Motor City is Burning? Yeah. So this is a cover of a 1967 song by John Lee Hooker about the Detroit race riots. Um, although MC5 wrote, rewrote many of the lyrics, really to just make it more, I don't know, confrontational, make it more aggressive, you know, if, that, if that makes yeah. sense. No, that, that makes perfect sense. So just a couple, a couple of examples of that, you know. The fire wagons kept coming, baby, but the Black Panther snipers wouldn't let them put it out. So John Lee Hooker never referred to the, the Black Panthers in the original. And also, firemen's on the street, people all around. Now I guess it's time. I'd just like to strike a match for freedom myself. I may be a white boy, but I can be bad too. And obviously, John Lee Hooker yeah. wasn't singing about being a white boy. I love this. It's great. It's the the only thing I would I would say about it, and obviously it it is pulling from the John Lee Hooker original. It calms everything down after what's what's been before, mm-hmm. and it has a much more sort of traditional blues structure to it, which isn't bad or anything. It's just kind of surprising that it's it's very traditional sounding in comparison to what's gone before. I agree, but I understand it completely and think it's the right choice for it. Not not just in terms of it being in the gig, but it being on the album. So the first time I listened to it, I was out for a walk. And being out for a walk on the hills where I am, your pulse quickens anyway because it's fucking steep. But 
listening to some of the tracks, as I said, palpitations, you know, this is one that necessarily brings down the pace a bit. The first track itself is a blue standard as well. So's this. So it's not it's not a complete departure from, from everything else. Yes, this is much this is slower, this is more traditional, as you said. I as I say, I think I think it's necessary, I think it's well placed in the album. And what I will say is that Rob Tyner sounds incredible singing it. Mm-hmm. He pairs it down when he needs to, but when he needs to scream the fury, he absolutely belts it out, shrieking almost at times. You know, he sounds brilliant. Yeah, he articulates the furious anger mm. of the city. So what I've written, if you'll pardon the pun, is never before has a 12-bar blues sounded so incendiary. <laughs> yeah. There's something else I love about this, being a guitarist myself, dueling guitar solos, any song with dueling guitar solos is okay by me. It's Well, I did note down, it's a monumental guitar solo. It's brilliant. So yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I also think it's the right choice. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. Like Whilst it's surprising that it's so traditional in its format... Like if they were if they continued playing at the speed that they were playing at, well, I would have just assumed that they were on speed because <laughs> there's no way that they could keep up that tempo all through the gig. Kev, given some of the stuff I've read, they probably were. More than likely, like they have tried most of the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of this. Like it a lot. Yeah, me too. Shall we go on to the penultimate track? Yeah, I think we should. I want you right now. Which is a cover of a 1966 song by The Trogs. Couldn't tell that at all. I was going to (laughs) say, like, how wild thing is the riff on this? (laughs) Hive Mind again. First note, sounds like the opening to Wild Thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I listened to The Trogs original as part of the research, and so does that. (laughs) (laughs) Reg Presley, he found a sound and he stuck with it. True. And fair play to him. because Yeah, you know, know it, <laughs> it's quite a well-known tune. He's done all right exactly. out of it. <laughs> but again, the Trogs never sounded anywhere near this intense when they played Wild Thing or any other song for that matter. It's a dirty, aggressive song, this. Yes, it is. It is. So I've said I can hear Hendrix... And mm-hmm. Jim Morrison being channeled in the vocals on this. Yeah, Tyner's Ty definitely got a bit of bit of the Morrisons going on, and I'm not talking about Market Street. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> he's, he's not got like a pasty and a sausage <laughs> on the counter. Listen, Kev, everyone loves a ramble down Market Street. <laughs> Morrisons, if you want to send us free. Groceries, pasties, anything from Market Street? Sound. Yeah, sound. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like Wayne Kramer's guitar is pure Hendrix as well on this. Yeah. I would also like to give a shout to Dennis Thompson. I think some of the drum fills are unbelievable here. I think he's... We've ta- I've talked about how, how tight the rhythm section is throughout, but this is perhaps the only chance... He gets on the album to be a bit more expressive in what he can do, and I'm really, really impressed by it. Yeah, like he doesn't, like in a lot of the sort of other songs, he's kind of, and it's not to do him any sort of discredit or anything like that, but he's kind of just keeping the pace up 
this this gives him an opportunity to expand a bit and show that you know he's more he's more than just keeping rhythm. Yeah, quite agree. This is one of those tracks where you think doing a live album as your debut was the right thing to mm-hmm. do because this is what you're all about. Yeah, and I think this is certainly something you'll talk about later is that I have heard some of the later albums, the studio stuff, and it pales in comparison. Yeah. Like, they're just a brilliant live band and they just couldn't replicate it in the studio. Well, you said lightning in a bottle earlier on and that's what this is. Yeah. There's there's loads of musicians who you know you hear reference to that like they never managed to get their live set onto vinyl or anything like that because the studio process just wasn't the same. Indeed, which they acknowledged. I'll go back to, mm-hmm. to the quote I read from from Wayne Kramer at the start. They knew that, and that's why they decided to go to go this way. So yeah, that's about all I've got to say about I Want You Right Now. Uh, I really like it. Yeah, it's it's really good. Okay, and with with that we go on to the closer. Starship. Mm-hmm. This is a song where avant-garde poet and jazz musician Sun Ra gets a co-writer credit because the lyrics that are sung during the extended jam section are taken from one of his poems. I've got a lot to say about this, so I'd like you to go first, please. Okay, so I like how it starts. I don't like it once you get to the space freak out. It sounds like reminiscent of Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. And it may well work better as a live performance piece, but it's not for me, Jeff. It just didn't grab me at all. Unfortunately, I think it's quite a disappointing way to end the album because <laughs> it loses me. And then, like, I've got ages to wait because it's it's a long old song as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've you've touched on everything that I was going to say. I think it starts off really well. But it, after one minute and 55 seconds, yes, I counted, it just it falls to absolute shit. It, mm-hmm. You said earlier of Floyd, I've said it's the worst parts of King Crimson. It's like Philip Glass fell asleep on his mixing desk and drooled all over the equaliser. <laughs> yes, it is a colossally disappointing end to the album. Like, so, length. Your live album is less than 40 minutes in length which is short for a live album this track of only eight this track is eight minutes and 25 seconds which is 21 percent of the total runtime more in fact than 21 percent of the total runtime yes i've done the maths and over two-thirds of that eight minutes 25 seconds is tuneless warblings and wailings and it's a disjointed mess I'm sure if you're on if you're on acid and there's a light show going on, you're having a fucking whale of a time. But yeah, okay, I can see your point there, but I'm not on acid. I'm listening no. to a. This is where the difference between a live performance and a live album needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. I've bought a record here that I want to listen to. I've got more to say on this, and I feel really, I do feel really strongly about this. You cannot have a song like "Kick Out the Jams." And talk about the things that you are against. I'm going to refer back to the quote, Wayne Kramer, the year of the 20-minute guitar solo, the 40-minute drum solo. Mm-hmm. You cannot speak about that and talk about your harassment of those bands and then have this at the end of your debut album. Yeah, This is everything, and I mean everything, that they claim to be railing against. And I have to say, because of that, this makes me genuinely angry as a way to end the album. It is completely misjudged. 
It is completely out of place. And I would go so far as to say it is the worst track of any that we have covered so far on Album Clash. <laughs> wow. Because of what it stands for as much as how it sounds. And remember, we have done Be Here Now. Mm-hmm. It, it is the antithesis of what's gone before. Yes. Yeah, you, you've absolutely nailed it that it is pure musical wanking. Mm-hmm. And I am not for that kind of thing. It's not for me at all. And it it, it does it does leave a proper bitter taste in the mouth because yeah. everything's gone before. So borderline, you know, we have we have some issues with it, but there's something you can grab onto there. Yeah. Like as you say, with this song, the first minute, fine with it. And then what are you doing? Exactly. I'm 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 glad you agree because I was a bit nervous, as I said, having never heard this album before and having had such a visceral and I mean I've used that word a lot before, but this was really visceral. I I, I actively dislike this song. I was a bit nervous about coming and saying that, but I'm glad you agree. <laughs> no, it's so it like in the parlance of modern means of listening to music since the C D was invented. It's a skipper. Yes, it is a skipper. And for your closer, as we've both said, really, really disappointing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have nothing else to say about it because I need to calm down. (laughs) I need to just not talk about it anymore. Shall we do some reviews? Yeah, let's hear them. I've got a couple of long ones here. Well, I've got one really fucking long one and you know who that's from. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Writing his first ever review in Rolling Stone, the legendary rock critic Lester Banks, who, for anyone that's seen the Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous, was portrayed in said film by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late and sadly missed Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, of Kick Out the Jams, well, Lester Banks was not a fan initially, at all. He said... About a month ago, the MC5 received a cover article in Rolling Stone proclaiming them the new sensation, a group to break all barriers, kick out all jams, total energy thing, etc, etc. Never mind that they came on like a bunch of 16-year-old punks on a meth power trip. These boys, so the line ran, could play their guitars like John Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders played sax. Now the album is out and we can all judge for ourselves. For my money, they came on more like Blue Cheer than Train and Sanders. But then my money is already gone for a copy of this ridiculous, overbearing, pretentious album. Musically, the group is intentionally crude and aggressively raw, which can make for powerful music, except when it is used to conceal a paucity of ideas as it is here. Most of the songs are barely distinguishable from each other. You've heard this all before from such notables as The Seeds, Blue Cheer question mark and the mysterions and the king's men the difference here the difference that will sell several hundred thousand copies of this album is that the hype the thick overlay of teenage revolution and total energy thing which conceals the scrapyard vistas and ugly noise so i do have something to say about that and it is in it is in relation to the traditional thought process that the MC5 were the clever political band, mm. and the Stooges were the thickos. I think Lester Bangs, whilst I don't necessarily agree with most of the article, I think he was onto that. You know, you look back at the album and you talk about Borderline, you talk about I Want You Right Now, you talk about Come Together. 
there's not much politics in that. No. There's not much subtlety or nuance in the lyrics or anything. And when we go on to speak about the Stooges next week, there is a lot more sort of thought about ennui and being lost at that at that age and stuff like that. So it, I think Kick Out the Jams, the actual song itself, masks and probably John Sinclair's management and how he positioned them, masks that they weren't as political as they are purported to be. So I would also say that that review speaks to the time in which the album was released. Mm-hmm. As we've already said, this was the era of Cream, of Hendrix, of Zeppelin. No one's heard anything like this before. And only three years later, 71, Lester Banks himself would recant these views in an article in which he said, uh, I can see why people privileged enough to be part of the apocalyptic birth of the five would be enraged. And to compound the irony, kick out the jams, so when he says enraged, he means enraged by his original review. Mm-hmm. And to compound the irony, Kick Out the Jams has become my favourite album, or at least one of the two or three most played for about three months now. So as the times shifted, as the era shifted from, to be very simplistic about it, the 60s to the 70s, mm-hmm. so did the, the opinions. And you, be, as I said after we did Top Trumps, this album and the one we're going to do next week have been very much reappraised in the years since their release. So that was what Lester Banks said. That was long. Okay, this is a quick one. In 1995, Greg Cott for the Chicago Tribune wrote uh, that Kick Out the Jams remains a crucial document, more politically strident and musically adventurous than just about any other flower power disc. So yes, despite what we've just said about they weren't as political as they as they were portrayed as being, when they did talk about and sing about their politics it did come across as more more genuine actually than a lot of what was going on in the west coast at the time yeah they whilst obviously we've um sort of highlighted that they weren't necessarily as political as they are always thought to be not necessarily as political within their songwriting yeah as they were thought to be let's say that okay yeah that's a, no that's a fair point that they still had things to say and when they did they said them with the furious anger of their genre of their style and on their presentation yeah absolutely okay last one before we get to nobby in his 2015 retrospective for all music mark deeming wrote while some folks who were there have quibbled that Kick Out the Jams isn't the most accurate representation of the band's sound, it's certainly the best of the band's three original albums and easily beats the many semi-authorised live recordings of MC5 that have emerged in recent years. Kick Out the Jams is one of the most powerfully energetic live albums ever made. For many years, Detroit has considered the high-energy rock and roll capital of the world. And Kick Out the Jams provided all the evidence anyone might need for the city to hold on to that title. I mean, uh, once again, they fucking nailed it there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great quote there. All right, okay. What does our friend Robert Criscow think about this album? There isn't actually a review of the album on his website. What there is is an article he wrote for the Village Voice in May of 69 about the MC5. I thought he would be, this was the point where he was writing for the Village Voice. Yeah. He wrote a two and a half thousand word essay. Of course he did. I am not, of course, 
going to read it all to you. I have read the whole thing, and the only good thing to come out of me having read the whole thing is that I never have to read it again. The the best thing about it was that you finished it. <laughs> uh, it is, as one would expect, meandering, self-indulgent, and at times, blitheringly incoherent. <laughs> uh, he- here are a couple of passages I would like to read for you. I first encountered the MC5 in Detroit, two weeks after missing them in Lincoln Park, where they were the only rock band to brave Mayor Daly's blue vibrations. That means more to me than those whose regard Chicago, or did until the force of contravening sentiment became overwhelming as a New York radical plot to subvert the head change revolution, you know, the one that's being led by Laura Nairo and Sly and the Family Stone, but it did not really predispose me to the band. The grass I'd smoked with my host, a hip entrepreneur from the neighbourhood around Wayne State, just may have. That's the opening paragraph. He mentions the band once in the opening paragraph. (laughs) So far, so very 60s. He continues. I was in Detroit because I had work to do and figured there'd be nothing to distract me. So I was disconcerted to run into a bohemian community with the same strident sense of destiny that always pisses me off in San Francisco. Finally, I agreed to go to a rock concert in some church, Unitarian, naturally, with all the turned-on cleric jive about community relevance and the anguish of modern man. I was just stoned enough not to let it down me. The warm-up was the popcorn blizzard, good. The psychedelic stooges, awful. And some blather about a religion called Zenta, weird. I was introduced to John Sinclair, who struck me as very hairy, but he made one memorable claim. The five, he boasted, did not just play the psychedelic top ten. I escaped to the weekend coffee house in the church annex during the Stooges, but even at that distance, they managed to give me a psychedelic headache. I was not in the mood for more energy music as I waited for the five in my pew. Okay. that's the, So, everything I've read there is from the first three paragraphs of that article. 308 words... In that 308 words in three paragraph, he's mentioned the subject of his article as many times as he has another band that he's not supposed to be writing about. And he has also mentioned his favourite subject, i.e. himself, a total of 14 times in that same passage. Well, and he's also admitted that he's too caned to, like, be up for, like, anything quite energetic. He would... He'd, he'd like... <laughs> A nice piece of cake, a brew, and something soft and soothing. He literally went for a nice piece of cake and a brew by, by yeah, his own account. A nice bit of carrot cake. I mean, it goes on like this, and I'm not I'm not going to read uh, any more practices apart from this one. My favourite part of the whole article, the whole droning essay, is the following sentence, which is resplendent in its complete lack of irony or self-awareness. The topper for me was the cover story in Rolling Stone. Adultery to the point of sheer credulousness and very long. (laughs) Really? You of all people criticising something for being long and just going on. (laughs) Do you know what? I've got to... Having read the whole thing, I'm beginning to admire this fella's hubris. (laughs) I really am. 
just entire <laughs> lack of self-awareness. Exactly. So I've I read you just over a tenth of that whole article. I will not be delving in. I'll put <laughs> it that way. Don't. Should we talk about some legacy then? I've got unless you've got any more reviews you want to talk about. No, no, I'm I'm ready to move on. Okay. So the first thing on the legacy, and, and I teased this earlier. Let's get back to the uh, Kick Out the Jams motherfuckers intro. So as I mentioned earlier, the single version of Kick Out the Jams had a cleaner edit. Okay? So basically, I'm going to just let Wayne Kramer pick up the story again from the Louder Sound article from a couple of years back. He said, We knew Motherfucker was never going to be played on the radio, so we recorded the Brothers and Sisters version for the single. We instructed Electric to wait until it peaked in the chart before releasing the album. Because when the album's released, the shit's going to hit the fan, you know? But we'll have already won by having a hit single by then. Well, once they saw the single taken off, they rushed the album onto the shelves. And when the kids came home with this record, mum and dad heard motherfucker, you could hear the outrage reverberate across America. We've spoken about this, we, you know, with Prince, with NWA, you know, America and moral panic over bad languages is nothing new. Electra asked us, could they put out a clean version of the album? We said no, and they did it anyway. We'd already had major disruption in our relationship, and then, because of our contract, which said we had control over our advertising, a local department store refused to carry our record... He refers to Hudson's department store in Ann Arbor. We called them on it, and in very graphic street language, and we sent Electra the bill. So, (laughs) to explain. Hudson's department store refused to carry the record. In response, the MC5, they took out a full-page advert in a local newspaper, which, amongst other things, said, Fuck Hudson's. And, and this is the crucial part, that full-page ad had the Electra Records logo, <laughs> which they had not obtained permission for. So, going back to Wayne Kramer, he said, that was the final straw, and Electra fired us. Okay. Electra claimed in the statement they released that the main reason for cancelling the contract of the MC5 was the fact that they'd used the Electra logo without their consent in what was quite an incendiary advert. (laughs) (laughs) So, without a record company, MC5 wondering what to do, but because of the success of Kick Out the Jams, the album, and the controversy over the use of profanity, which had got them a lot of publicity, some of which they'd paid for themselves, (laughs) there was a bit of a... A bidding war. Yeah, exactly. Bidding war, thank you. They signed to Atlantic Records in 1970. They released the follow-up album, which was their debut studio album, which is called Back in the USA. When the album came out, reviews again were mixed. It wasn't a commercial success, so considering that Kick Out the Jams had peaked at number 30 on the Billboard chart, Back in the USA only reached number 137. They also had fallen out with John Sinclair and he was no longer managing the band. Now, that's partly because in 1969 he'd been jailed for marijuana possession. He got a 10-year sentence. Which he, he managed to successfully appeal. However, because the band had fallen out with John Sinclair, they were actually prevented from playing at a benefit gig in support of his release in 1971. So relations had obviously soured... Quite a bit. 
In 72, they released their third album, which was called High Time. It wasn't very well promoted by Atlantic. That one only got to 191. They were then dropped by Atlantic Records. On New Year's Eve in 1972, they played a reunion show, so to speak, at the Grand Ballroom. However, given that only, what, four years before that, a thousand people had packed out the venue, and as we've talked about a few times, were frenetic, were chaotic, were, you know, absolutely going off. Apparently only a, a few dozen people showed up to this reunion show and they played a few songs and, and, and a visibly dejected and despondent Wayne Kramer walked off stage. And very soon after that, the band announced their dissolution. That's the end of the MC5s. We are we are done. In 1991, Rob Tyner suffered a heart attack and he died. He was just 46 years of age. In 1994, Fred Smith, also aged 46, suffered the exact same fate. In 2003, the three remaining members reunited. They played a series of of live shows over the subsequent years. Until in 2012, Michael Davis passed away at the age of 68 with liver failure. Uh, just three years ago, back in 2018, to mark the 50th anniversary of the release of Kick Out the Jams, Wayne Kramer announced the MC50 tour. That lineup included uh, Kim Thale and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and Billy Gould, who used to be the bassist in Faith No More. So that's the history of, of, of MC5, but really the history of MC5 ended in 1972. So, as I said, just four years after after that high point. And that inspired choice of, as you said, let's do a live album. Let's do it in our own territory with our own crowd. Just four years later, that wasn't their own crowd anymore, and mm-hmm. and no one turned up. No, it's a it's a really it's a really sad end. How the band never really were able to capture the former glory. The the move to Atlantic didn't work out, and obviously. In the subsequent years, many of the constituent members of the band have their own personal struggles with various addictions and that. And obviously it had the knock-on impact on their health, leading to you know people dying young and that. Exactly, exactly. Tra- tragic, as you said. In terms of legacy of the album, to try and pick things up and move things along, we've both spoken quite a lot about this already, but the real legacy is the influence it had over so much of what followed... As we've said, obviously punk. You know, heavy metal, hard rock came out of this. In, in fact, Lemmy was quoted as, as as saying one of his inspirations for forming Motorhead after he'd got booted from Hawkwind was that he wanted his new band to be fast and vicious, just like the MC5. And I mean, you know, like, obviously Rage Against the Machine covered uh, Kick Out the Jams, and what you can certainly say is that the MC5 managed to give an indication the politically based punk politically based rock has a place has a market and um if you do it well you will find an audience and certainly they there's a clear influence on on rage against the machine definitely yes i mean this is another one of those albums as we talked about certainly with what's going on a couple of weeks ago and with Innervisions last week, and we, we've done it you know, on quite a number of albums. It's another one of those albums that changed the musical landscape. It is a keystone moment in the history of, of, of rock music. 
unlike many of those others that we've already spoken about, this one is far less heralded. I'd never heard it in full until we started going through this class. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say I'm the bastion of all music knowledge, but, you know. It isn't one that's held up as a classic album, an album you must hear before you die. It, yeah. it, isn't, it isn't given that kudos, even though it certainly was the progenitor of lots of stuff that came later. Yeah, quite so. Um, how I would sum it up in my you know usual portentous way, they set out to change the world... And they did, just not in the way that they thought they were going to. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a very good way to put it. All right, with that, what's your best song? What's your worst song? So I think my worst song is quite obvious. It's Starship. It shouldn't be on this album. Mm-hmm. And the best song is I'm going to be Johnny Obvious, and it is Kick Out the Jams because it's a fucking belter. Okay, there's no argument here. Yeah, Starship. It almost completely undercuts the legacy and the message of this album, almost. And yeah, kick out the jams. It's a force of nature. You could argue the song single-handedly changed rock history. Mm -hmm. Without question. Okay, that's it, I guess, in terms of kick out the jams. And um, next week, you're going to be taking us through, well, just remind people what it is, what they've got to listen to. So for next week, your homework is to listen to The Stooges by The Stooges. Boom. All right, then. Over to you. How can people keep in touch with us, please? So, as as Tim mentioned at the start of the episode, it's the 5th of November today. Um, so we are in the run-up to what's known in the UK as Remembrance Sunday. So over the course of this next week, uh, people with who love to have flags in their bios are going to show how much they love poppies. And anyone who, does, who doesn't cover their entire body with poppies is disrespecting anyone who gave their life for this country. <laughs> That's going to happen for this next week on Twitter. Whilst on Twitter, you may want to check out our Twitter page at Clash Album. Let me be clear. I wholeheartedly respect and support the work that the Royal British Legion does. That should go without saying. However, the politicisation of the poppy is a sickness in this country that I find simultaneously baffling and depressing. We are against uh, using the poppy as a mask for your um, xenophobia and rampant nationalism. Quite so. I suggest we move on. Okay. Can people keep in touch with us by any other means, Ken? You can do. So if you if you want to stray away from such political content, then you can check out our carefully curated content on our Instagram, which is at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, then you may want to send us an email to albumclash at gmail.com where you can tell us where we can stick our poppies. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, great stuff. Uh, Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. As I always say, if you're liking the show, subscribe, tell your mates about it, leave a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to the podcast, leave a review, tell us what albums that you think we aren't reviewing that we should do, what clashes are obvious that we're missing, what cities should we visit in our musical city season, you know, all that stuff. Get involved. Sam does great stuff on Insta. Twitter's an awful place. (laughs) Full of awful people, including ourselves. True, actually. Uh, But yeah, we'll see you next week. Until then, though, I have been Tim. I remain to be careful. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Take care. Ta-da. Ta-da.